have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can locate one in the seat below you. If you refuse to have a Bible, that's a sin issue, and we could talk about it afterwards. I'm looking at you. No, I'm just kidding. All right. At least I'm not standing by there with an offering box saying, I didn't see you give anything. Um, put that on the elders meeting for Monday. We should talk about that. What to do then? Well, we, we can go all Roman Catholic. Once a, what's a, what was it, the coin hits the, uh, something, when I, something. Yeah, there was a rhyme that went with it, though. Every time a coin hits something, a soul from purgatory springs. I'm like, well, we don't really believe in purgatory, but anyway. Yeah, there you go. Sprung. What a fun word. Psalm 14. I will read it in its entirety. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there, is, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad." Now, before I begin, I want to make a quick note. Uh, you'll notice in the back that McKin uh, McKinley, Adeline, and Kadea are not Hispanic. Um, usually our Hispanics are sitting back there and, and are being translated to, uh, but they have asked if, if, if Frank can take my notes and they can meet and do it that way. And so they're going to be doing that for some Wednesday nights here on out uh, just to help them with understanding the text better. So they've got our blessing to do that. However, if they rise up and have a small militia come out of there, we're going to cancel the Hispanic ministry, and uh, we'll be figuring something else. So, so. so, Viva La Mexico? I don't know what that is. What does that mean? I don't, okay, no, just kidding. Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is an interesting psalm. Uh, if you've been with us here on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Psalms. Uh, been going here and there, and we've, we've skipped a couple, and we'll get back to those. But the Psalms are rather interesting because, again, Psalms have feelings that are involved. We live in a very feelings society, right? People like to talk about their feelings and all this other type of stuff. And, but the Bible is a, a very emotional book. And, and the book of Psalms, again, is a beautiful example of that. Um, we, we've looked at... Uh, um, uh, the, Psalm 11 talked about um, how the, the psalmist was getting poor counsel and someone was telling him that he should flee like a mountain, but he knew that that was not what he should be doing. His trust is in the Lord and he doesn't have to run from the wicked because uh, God is his security and God is his refuge. Uh, psalm 13, again, a beautiful psalm, a, a psalm of suffering. We've all suffered at some level. We've all had to walk through uh, difficulties of life. Not all suffering is equal. There's 
uh, Jeremiah 12, you've got uh, some suffering that's basic and, and some that's really hard. It's like going to the hospital. You, know, you, may, you may go in because you need stitches, but the other person has a broken arm and someone else is on a dialysis machine. So they're all suffering, but it's going to look differently. So we've all been there. We've all seen that. In fact, I, I got to bring this up this past week with a family uh, as we talked about how just circumstances are not fun, suffering is real, and God speaks right into that. Tonight, we look at Psalm 14, talking about the fool. There's three major points. If you've got a handout, um, uh, uh, my wonderful assistant um, handed these out. So if you didn't get one, raise your hand. You, yeah, well, you were late. You missed your own birthday party. Good grief. What's your, so, um, hey, you're good. You're good. I may or may not have eaten all the Rick Crabber and Goon pizza. Anyways, um, Shiloh, do you need one, sweetheart? There are three major points here I want to look at. I've, I've broken up, and, and we can go through this. And, and again, I, I'm not, uh, our goal is just to look through it, to see the text, walk through it, and then we're going to make some just observations at the end of it as we go through this. Um, if you have questions, again, talk to M- Mr. Burtz afterwards. He'll do anything to just do with that. Our first point, number one, the fool described. The fool described. Again, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So we need to start with what is a fool? If you call someone a fool, it's never a good thing. It's usually uh, looked down upon. It's not a favorable term. Uh, No one says, hey, I'm a fool, and where's that on a t-shirt? But we need to understand biblically, again, when we come to the text, what does it mean to be a fool? And the fool in Proverbs represents, uh, you know, various different things. And, and so I would say, in summary, a fool is someone who rejects God and his standard. You have in Proverbs, uh, Mr. Clay could do this better than I could. You've got the wise man and the foolish man. Well, the wise man is the one who submits to the Lord uh, and, and, and applies it. Wisdom, wisdom in general is taking truth and applying it. And so the wise person is someone who knows God, but the fool does not. They reject God. They reject God's standard. In fact, it says in in verse 1, he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Essentially, it's atheism. Now, you'll hear people say that they're agnostic, they're atheist. An agnostic, the word ah, it's the negative no. So the word gnostic means knowledge. So when someone says, I'm agnostic, they're saying they don't know if there's a God. Atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. Now, we know from Scripture that everybody has an inerrant understanding, but because of creation, as, as, and I was, as, as I was listening to Norm talk, it was beautiful not only to hear his testimony, but how it lined up with this, how, how creation declares the glory of God. And as we go through creation, we see and we say, wow, there has to be something else out there. We can't just be it. And so atheism is not something you're born into. It's actually something you actually have to work against an innate knowledge to get to that point. In fact, a lot of times, and I'm not going to pray it with a broad, bush, a broad brush, but a lot of times when you meet atheists, they're, they're angry. They're angry at a God who doesn't exist in their mind, which it doesn't make any sense, right? But they've worked so hard for this. Like, you hate something that's like, you hate the tooth fairy. Like, that doesn't even make sense, right? It doesn't exist, but you hate it. In fact, girls, if I ruin something back, teens, if I ruin something, I'm sorry about that. Um, Shiloh, I hope you didn't hear that. Okay, anyways. 
right? You've got to work to get to this position. But there's famous atheists, people like uh, Richard Dawkins and and so many others who, who have rejected this idea of God. But you have to understand that when you reject God, and the basis of God and, and, and his, his authority in your life in general. Because the psalm, it's going to talk about essentially the ungodly in general. But when you believe in that there is no God, at that point you, again, move away from his righteous standards. So to say there is no God and then to live life in light of that quote-unquote truth that you believe, it has major ramifications. In fact, you see that here in verse 14. Again, I'm sorry, in chapter 14. It's not chapters, it's a psalm. Sorry, Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And now he's going to describe them. These people say one thing, so their belief system is there is no God. Verse 1, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So when the restraints of God's law are removed, when the fear of God is removed from the heart, what you get is, is wickedness. In fact, he says in verse 1, he uses the word corrupt. Uh, the, the Hebrew word there literally means, it means the Hebrew translation corrupt here can also mean wicked. It, it's something has been corrupted. It's been compromised. And we have been compromised by sin. The other word there in verse, four, at verse 1, I'm sorry, is the word abominable. It has nothing to do with a snowman. The abominable, it has the idea uh, to behave in a vile manner, right? And so you live your life contrary to what is proper. So the question is, what is an abomination? So if, if you'll just hold your spot here, slide your thing there. If you want to turn over to the book of Proverbs, which is the next book over, if you look at Proverbs 6, we'll read this real quick. Because when you and I think of like an abomination, we think, oh my gosh, it's terrible, it's gross. There's just a wicked way of living, and that is true, right? We hear stuff on the news, and it shocks us to our core. Or sometimes when I'm reading stuff, like, like I don't watch the news a ton, but if I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll spend 30 seconds, and I'll look at Fox News, just the front page real quick. And some stories are so bad, I don't even want to click on the story. Right? It's just, I, I'm done, right? I'm tired of hearing about Jeffrey Epstein. But at some knowledge, we need to know what goes on in this world, how wicked it is. But we get to Proverbs 6 real quick. If you look at verses 16 through 19, he says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. So God's going to tell you, this is what I think is 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 abominable. 17, haughty eyes. What is that? Haughty eyes is when I look down on you and I think I'm better than you. God hates that. To him, it's an abomination. It's, it's a judgmental eye. I'll give you, I'll give you a, a pastoral insight. I'm not perfect, by the way, uh, so I'm going to confess a sin to you. And it wasn't even a, I, I was, uh, I, took, I told you I went and took my vehicle to get taken care of. And, um, and so, for the glory of God, I, you know, I had to wait and get it fixed, but Mike's got a little office there, and he says, well, he was having a meeting. I said, hey, listen, it's okay. I know this is inconvenient, but I'll just walk a block to Dunkin' Donuts, and I'll buy a donut, which gives me the right to sit there until you finish my vehicle, <laughs> right? And I brought a book with me. I brought a really good book, What is Saving Faith by John Piper. So I'm, I'm here for a spiritual adventure. But as I'm waiting in line, I start to develop a judgmental attitude 
towards these people working at Dunkin' Donuts. Like, what type of people work here? And, and I'm judging them based on their appearance. You know, and it's just, it's just it, was a, it was a natural, sinful thing I'm doing. And as I walk up, I put my book down. The girl across the counter looks at me and goes, that's a really good book. And I just remember thinking, ouch. Praise God. Ouch. And then uh, I just remember thinking, that's, forgive me, Lord. That's not what I, sh- I should. I don't normally do that, but I caught my, it was just one of those moments where I did it, and I'm like, mm. But it's looking down on others. That's what haughty eyes are. Verse 17, a lying tongue. It's a sin to lie. He hates it. Verse 16, the Lord hates these things. And hands that shed, heads that shed innocent blood. In other words, you, you intentionally hurt people. 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. Can, how can we plot to hurt people? 18, f- uh, feet that make haste to run to evil. 19, a false witness. Again, those who lie. Who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. In other words, you intentionally start strife, not because you're passionate about God's glory, because you enjoy disunity. We would call those people drama queens. I got girls going, hmm, 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 lumber, hmm, hmm. So let's go back to Psalm 14. So again, real quick, and you keep moving. The text says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. So when you don't believe in God, and you abandon God's works, His law, you, everything and anything can go. And you're seeing that even now, to give uh, a, a, an understanding. When, you remember, God's law is a good thing. We usually sometimes think, oh God, I remember as a kid, or my kids would say it too, oh God is just a, a joy kill, Right? Why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? And what the law of God is good, because he says, here's the boundaries, and if you go outside of it, you, it's actually not good. You'll actually hurt yourself, right? So the, the God's law is good. It's, it's, it's wrong to lie, steal, cheat, to shed innocent blood, to cheat on your wife, to cheat on your husband, to look at pornography. All this stuff is wrong. And, but if you engage in it, it hurts others. It's a sin against God, and you hurt your own soul. But, what, but man's law is not a good law because man's law is sinful, it's susceptible to moral corruption, and it's constantly shifting. Because if man determines right from wrong, then it's just man's desires on his whim, right? Just take, for example, our liberal cities. And I'm not, I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about just li- liberal in lifestyle, right? And, and look at their policies. We, we, we've got policies that promote transgender. Clearly, God has made two sexes, man and a woman, and you are what you are by God's good design. But we live in a world now where it's possible for you to change your, bio, your, your, your physical makeup to change genders, but that doesn't change actually who you are. We, we've got policies now in cities with, with bathroom, locker room policies where if a boy just says he identifies as a girl, he can now go in the girl's locker room. We have men competing in women's sports. And we praise them for that. 
You talk about schools, you know, God's law says you, you punish the child and you should have correction and discipline. But now in public schools, a lot of them you get psychoanalysis. You blame the circumstances, you blame the external fa- factors. God forbid you actually teach children, they're, they're accountable for their actions. I, I was reading, talk about scrolling through the news, a, propo- a proposed law in Illinois targeting parents who do not support, condone, or aid their children's choice to live an alternative lifestyle. Your child thinks, your boy thinks he's a girl, and if you don't help him become a girl, you're in trouble. This, this is what the fool does. The fool abandons God's law, says there is no God, or, or, just, or, or fails to uh, heed to it, and what happens is, is you get moral corruption. Again, he describes them in verse 1. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. Now to be fair, because we're not looking down with haughty eyes, this is you and I apart from the grace of God. What, you know, the follow-up question, and, and Norm doesn't answer this out loud, if, but if you've had, we've had all you guys answer, you know, you've given your testimony. Uh, my next question could have been, hey, where would you be if God had not opened your eyes to the grace of God? And we'd all sit here and go, I don't want to hear that. But that's who we are by nature, right? We're liars, thieves, womanizers, you name it, drug abusers. That, that's who we are, right? That's who we are by sinful nature. But by God's grace, that's who we are. It's that, it's that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, then you get to verse 4. But God. It's God who has changed us. So, your first major point, the fool described. Again, he's, he, he doesn't believe in God. He hates God. Therefore, he's corrupt. He's abominable. And he, and, and there's no, and there, he says there, there's none who does good. We'll, we'll just describe that here in a second. This leads to our second point, verses 2 through uh, 4, I believe it's in your notes. Uh, that's going to be the Lord's assessment. I didn't spell it out for you because I wanted you to struggle. The word is assessment. What does God think of this? I, I love, <laughs> I had a laughing moment. Sometimes you're just reading something and the text is kind of boom. And of course, I, uh, my wife says I'm not funny. And I said, that's fine. But as long as I'm laughing, I don't care. Uh, if I make myself happy, who cares? I don't know if you think I'm funny or not. Um, By the way, I just say this, this has nothing to do with any of this. Talking about sin issues um, and sexual issues. Um, the Republican nonpareil interviewed me, and I didn't realize it, but today it was in the newspaper. And it was a really nice little article that he did. He's going to do the podcast that we did together. But in there, he used the word inclusivity twice. And I just want you to know that his definition of that is not what I would define as inclusivity, like that we're an inclusive place. He talks about how we preach the word, we're founded on Jesus Christ, and then he says we're inclusive. And I, I'm thinking, I think I know what you mean by that, but there's a theological inclusiveness that, that we don't do, and so just FYI, don't stone me if you, want, if you read that. So anyways, verse 2, again, the Lord's assessment. You've had the fool described, now the Lord's going to assess the situation. So <laughs> it's funny because it says here in verse 1, what? The fool says there is no God. Verse 2, so the Lord looks down from heaven. <laughs> God doesn't exist, verse 2. The God that doesn't exist is now looking at the whole situation. That was my, my funny little chuckle. It, you, you may convince yourself that something doesn't exist, but it, the fa- that doesn't change the facts. 
Right? You, 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 can, you can convince yourself hard, this doesn't exist, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen, but it doesn't change the fact that it's going to happen or it does exist. And again, you notice God's, God's position. You've got this fool saying there is no God, verse 1, but in verse 2, the Lord, he, he looks down from where? From heaven. The pictures of, of, of the sovereign creator looking down on his creation. And so while man rebels, shakes his fist, and says there is no God and makes other gods, uh, God rules, reigns, and remains. Man can fight, kick, and scream all he wants, but he can't get outside the box because God's over the box. You may pretend and try to truly convince you yourself that I don't believe, but I'm here. So again, verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. Again, God's creation, his image bearers. Why? To see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God. Are there any who know the truth, who, who seek after me on their own? If you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard this statement like I have. I've said it before you know, or my, in, earlier in my ministry. Uh, maybe not a ton, but you, know, you just have a God-shaped hole in your heart. And man just naturally desires to go look after God. When the text is completely opposite that. Man is not looking for God. He hates God. So God looks at his creation. Is there anybody who, who truly understands on their own? The answer is going to be no, because look what he says here, verse 3. They have all turned aside. There's that straight and narrow path, one of worshiping God, the way they're supposed to live. But everybody has gone off the, everybody has gone off the path. And that's dangerous. Because that path doesn't lead anywhere but destruction. So they've all left the proper path. They've all turned aside. He continues, verse 3, together they have become corrupt. So in other words, they're, they're sinful in their, in, their, in their individuality. But then he says here, together they have become corrupt. So now they work together to become corrupt. There's this unison of corruption. They're corrupt together. They, they encourage and play off each other. We know this from the Bible. We should be careful about who we hang out with. Why? Because sinful things will rub off onto godly things. That's why when you have two, if you've ever been, a, if you've ever been in a classroom, if you've had children, if you've seen children, <laughs> when you've got an ornery child, and you pair them up with another ornery child. Oh, the orneriness. They can plot and scheme and do a whole lot of things. Then you add another child into the mix. And then you just put some innocent fourth kid in there. And guess what happens? They get sucked into the matter as well. Why? Because that's what sin does. It corrupts. And so the Lord's looking down. He's assessing the situation. And he says, is there anybody who, you know, metaphorically, is there anybody who, who does good? Who does? He says, nope, they're all turned aside. They've all become corrupt. Look at this. There is none who does good, not even one. You should know that verse. That's a very familiar verse. That's part of Paul's uh, argument in Romans 3 when he starts quoting the Scriptures. There is none righteous, no, not one. They're, they're all corrupt. What he's doing is he's pulling that from Psalm 14. Man is inherently wicked. But it's interesting here because he says in verse 2, 
or verse 3, I'm sorry, there is none who does good. And so you could sit there and say, hold on, Clint, hold on a second. People do good things. I'm a good person. And we could say from a moral level or from a, from a social level, yeah, people do good things. You know, you, you help little old ladies across the street, right? You know, uh, whether, whether it's a, you know, Central City, uh, I think it's DECA and other programs over there, that Mrs. McPhillips and some other, the leadership team does this too, I think with Mr. Burbach. It's, you know, they try to do a coat drive and they try to do this. And those are nice things that they do. The problem is, as though they're good deeds from a, from, a, from a secular level, they're not truly good because their motivation is not the glory of God. Because even, let's be honest, even as Christians we do this, we're, we're, so, we're so humble we hurt ourselves when we pat ourselves on the back. Look how awesome I am. That's the joke about people going on short-term missions trips. You, know, you take a picture with all these people, you say, look how spiritual I am. Did you do anything? Not really. We're all wicked. There are eight, I, I googled it today because the internet never lies. There are 8.1 billion people on the earth right now. Last time I checked, there were seven. But now it's eight. And by nature, it's including you and I, none of us are good. We are sinful. By, by, by our born nature, by our, sin, by our nature, we are sinful. We are enemies of God. We are not born with a relationship to him. We may know about him, but we hate him. And, and, and we are in bondage to sin. He continues, verse 4, again, his, this is the Lord's assessment. Uh, and, and David kind of questions, he says here, have they no knowledge? Now, don't they understand? Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers, who, look how he describes them, who eat up my people as they eat bread. And do not call upon the Lord? It's just, it's just man in his fallenness is extremely wicked. In fact, you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you see this. After uh, Cain kills Abel, there's just this line of Cain that you get to and they're just godless people. But finally you get to Genesis 4 and it says to Seth, which is Adam and Eve's other son, to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. By nature, unless God intervenes, sinners are going to sin. So the picture that's being painted here is not a good one. And, you know, whether it's atheism or just outright ungodliness, that's who people are. And God looks down on it and he says, this is not good. Which leads to our third and final point, the Lord's response. How does the Lord respond to this? And it's funny because now in the psalm, the, the, the scene kind of shifts. Something has taken place. We're not told what it is. Verse 5, there they are in great terror. It's talking about the ungodly. So they went from verse 4, from plotting and eating up my people, to verse 5, now they're in great terror. 
Because they recognize something now at some point. What is that, verse 5? For God is with the generation of the righteous. In other words, there, there's something that has happened, whether in real time or in big picture, they come to the understanding that God is with the godly. They sit there and they eat them. And they eat them and they, they terrorize and they make fun of them. They do all this kind of stuff to make their life literally a hell on earth. But then there's a recognition. Wait, we're actually opposing God by opposing them. And again, in verse 5, it's not just they have terror, they have great terror. Somehow God has acted or revealed that he stands with the righteous, which means, he's, which means that he is against them. And the Bible is very clear in several passages about how, how God hates the ungodly. Uh, I remember when God reveals, some, uh, some of you remember the Old Testament, when God reveals himself, even to the people of Israel, you know, and, and the people are like, listen, we don't want to talk to God. Moses, you do it. Hebrews 10, one of the biggest warning passages in all the Bible. Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. I think it's truth like that that motivates Mr. Kaiser's neighbor to come evangelize his neighbor's. It's not just a love of, it's not just, hey, I, 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 it's not just a love that I care about you. It's a love that says I care about you so much that I recognize the destiny you're headed and I love you enough to tell truth to you regardless of how you're going to respond to me. Again, David's speaking in verse 5. He says, there they, are in, there they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous, Verse 6, you, talking to the evil ones, you would shame the plans of the poor. This is what you would do. You would do this and that, but, verse 6, but the Lord is his refuge. God is the one that we run to. That's the beautiful thing that, brothers and sisters, you and I have always been the minority. Always. We've always been the minority, and we will always be the minority until Christ comes back and rules and reigns on the earth. And so while we are a minority, we have to understand that, again, amongst the difficulty of living amongst unbelievers who may pressure us, who, who, uh, who, have, uh, who terrorize us, and, and from an American standpoint, we have it kind of easy considering our brothers and sisters around the world, our brothers and sisters in the Muslim countries. Who, to them, this is a real-time issue. Like, listen, there are people who want to kill us. But in the midst of that, the text is very clear. Verse 6, the Lord is his refuge. In other words, he's the place I can take my thoughts and my mind. It's not that literally God sets up a camp for him and he hides for him. No, no. The Lord takes care of him. In the midst of your trials, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of all the ongoing junk that you have to go through and the pressure, you can go to God and rest there. Because he's got you. Like I said, I was counseling a family this week, and, and, one, and, and one of the issues that we have to go through with people when they're struggling at times is the issue of when suffering happens, the question we looked at, remember, in verse 13 is, where are you? In fact, it was rather funny because the person that I was talking to says, how long, how long, how long? And that, how, does, how does Psalm 13 open? How long, how long, and I, how long? And I pointed them to that. And what does he do in Psalm 13? He goes to the Lord. Where else are you going to go? 
How do sinners take care of that stuff? Well, they try to quote-unquote cope with it. Take matters into their own hands. That's how you get on the news, by the way. As believers, we go to the Lord. But the problem is, functionally, as Christians, we don't act like Christians when we begin to struggle. We act like unbelievers. And we have to guard our hearts against that. We have to take our theology. Remember, it's a good theology helps us. Or bad theology will hurt us. So again, verse 6 here, we'll hurry. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Then there's this beautiful cry, verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, or come out of Jerusalem. There's a cry for deliverance, specifically for the nation of Israel. So in the middle of this suffering that's going on, that David or whatever's going on, we don't know the circumstances, there's this cry out that salvation and deliverance will come. And what's rather interesting is the final part of this verse. I need help, I need help, I need help, I need help. Oh, 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 that this would take place. Oh, God, that you would intervene. Verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would, for, would come out of Zion. Next verse, or next word. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now notice what he says there. This is very important. Words matter. Again, what's the cry? Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Lord, we want you to deliver us. Oh, that it would come. Verse 7, when? That's huge. It's not a conditional statement. He didn't say, if the Lord restores the fortunes of Israel. No, 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 why? Because he has hope and he has confidence when there's a certainty. And how does he know? How can he be certain that God will act? And this has been the theme that has run through all this. He can be certain that God will act because he has been informed about who God is through the Scriptures. You need good theology. I need good theology. I need to be in the Word so when there's suffering, when, when there's trials, then I can know what God says and I can know His character. He knows from the Scriptures about God, the Hebrew word chesed. It's that covenant faithfulness that when God saves you, there's this faithfulness of, in this covenant that He will love you regardless of your inability to love Him perfectly. Isn't it wonderful to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that God loves you more than you love Him? Praise God that your salvation is not predicated on your love. We'd be losing it every day, right? Oh, no, that covenant of faithfulness. I love you, I've got you, I love you. You're going to turn from time, at times, you're going to struggle and sin, but I still love you, I'm still there. And I'm going to deliver. Not because of you, but because of my faithfulness to you. Because of my character. And so there's hope. So how do we take Psalm 14? I just I, I put some notes down here, and I want to share them with you real quick. Three or two quick things. The first one is how should we engage the ungodly, the unbelievers? How do we live life amongst an ungodly world here? And I and I put down with truth, love, and the gospel. In the midst of ungodliness, you and I have to remember that we're called to love our enemies. Right? Both our real enemies and our perceived enemies. 
I'm not talking about your mother-in-law, but again, you, you love them, right? Sometimes from a distance, right? No. We love them. But then remember, not only do we need to love our enemies as we live, live amongst them, but we need to remember that we have to speak truth to them because faith comes by hearing. So you can't say, well, the whole world's going to hell, so I'm just going to sit at home and watch Fox News all day. Nope, that doesn't honor God. Because you're called to what? Love, uh, love God, love others, and to serve them and to evangelize. So you've got to be proactive. You know, sports teams, it's like basketball. You know, um, you know, baseball. Baseball is nine, nine men, ten men if you've got a designated hitter. But you'll have 24, 25 people on a baseball team. So some people don't play. Some people play, like, occasional innings. As Christians, there's no bench. Be faithful. You're in the game. Be faithful to the game ends, whether that's Jesus coming back or you die. So you and I are going to live in this world under not fun circumstances at times with people who don't love us or like us, who hate our God. And we're called to respond to him a certain way. And this leads here to this last part here, just this one little note here. How should we live? So how do we engage? How do we live amongst unbelievers? And I think this last, these last two verses here hit it really well. How, sh- how should we live amongst unbelievers? It's by faith. We live by faith. We have to trust in God for everything. That trust there you see in verse 7, when the Lord restores the fortunes. It, 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 he's going to deliver you. It may not be in this life. You know, we had a prayer request about someone who's dying. It, again, we talked about this. It may be the Lord's will that he does not heal you. And as Christians, we've got to come to terms with, that's okay. Heaven is far better. You know. It may be the Lord's will that you die. It may be the Lord's will that this happens. And we have to grow enough in our faith to get to the point where we say, Lord, your will be done. Because we know the good news is that absent from the body, it's present with the Lord. So we, don't, we need to live by faith. We need to stop worrying about and being anxious and worrying. But trust God. We live by faith and we live with hope. Let me close this in order of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your kindness tonight. And we thank you for the opportunity to jump into the text. And Lord, I thank you that although we live in a fallen world with sinful people, Lord, you see it, you're going to take care of it. You're going to deliver the righteous. Sometimes we'll get a temporary deliverance here, but we will all have a future deliverance in heaven. Father, help us to live out the gospel, to share the gospel, to be faithful to you until you call us home. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.